This morning we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so please turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We did the first part of this chapter last week, and we'll be picking up with the second part of it today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to do verses 17 through the end uh, to, to verse 40. Before we jump into it, allow me to pray for our time in the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to open up your Word and just celebrate um, Thanksgiving again, just being reminded of the many things we have to be thankful for. Lord, it's, it's not just one day a year that we want to pause and be thankful. There's so much you've given us and so much we have to be thankful for and grateful for. So just ask that you would produce in each of our hearts greater and greater thankfulness each day and no, just allow us to have that pattern of gratitude. Lord, as we get into your word right now, I just ask that you'd help me to clearly present the truth of this text to help clarify um, any points of confusion and that we would just all go away from this time with a better grasp on what your word has for us um, here in 1 Corinthians. Ask that you would help us to be not only knowing what your word says, but also receptive to applying it and allowing our lives to be yielded to what you reveal in your word. So we ask that you'd bless this time, be with all of us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many of us are familiar with the term, a broken clock is right twice a day. I love that phrase because it's kind of a, there's always a chance that something that's usually wrong will be every now and then right. Connecting that to what we're saying in 1 Corinthians what do you do when you agree with someone's conclusions on a specific thing, but you totally disagree with how you got to that, with how they got to that conclusion? How do you refute bad theology when it happens to produce a good action on a specific issue? That's what Paul is faced with. Essentially, that's the challenge he has in this section of the letter. There were those advocating for asceticism. We talked about that a little bit last week which rejected even marital sexual intimacy, saying basically the physical is bad, sexual intimacy, bad, that's unspiritual. 1 Corinthians 7, 1, the quote, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what Paul then goes and discusses for the first 16 verses. And among other things, this was resulting in people being discouraged from getting married in general. That was one of the, the things that this teaching was resulting in. People were being discouraged from getting married. Now, Paul is going to provide some reasons why singleness is to be desired. But he does so from an entirely different theological basis from the ascetics and the false teachers that were there in Corinth. He does so strongly affirming the goodness of marriage, but then he bases his advocacy for singleness on the present distress rather than some sort of inherent goodness or inherent, uh, sorry, inherent evil within marriage. Far from it. He's going to affirm the goodness of marriage, meanwhile still pointing out that, okay, maybe on this one thing, the ascetics are maybe pushing you towards something that might be beneficial, but for totally different reasons than the false teachers were saying. In summary, what this passage is going to teach us is that faith in Christ and therefore true spirituality does not demand an immediate status change relationally or socially, but nevertheless, there are other reasons why a status change 
should be considered or discouraged. So we're going to unpack that. I know there's kind of a lot in there, and this is, this is a loaded passage to work through. So um, as we work through it, feel free to pause and stop and ask questions. We'll have a couple of places where we'll plan to pull off and have some table discussion, but quite a bit to cover this morning. And we're going to look at mainly two different sections, remaining as you are called in 7, 17 through 24, and then guidance for the unmarried specifically in 25 through 40, which um, I hope will be very helpful. So this first section, remain as you were called. We'll start by reading just 17 through 24. I'll be reading from the ESV. So 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So against those at Corinth who are putting forward a certain definition of spirituality, Paul exhorts the Corinthians to remain in the status, remain in the situation in which they were when they were called to Christ. Becoming a Christian does not necessitate a social status change. It doesn't necessitate an immediate job change. It doesn't necessitate a return to the Mosaic law or a change in marital status in order to be, quote-unquote, spiritual. The call to follow Christ is a call which transforms and transcends the factors of daily life. And that's what Paul jumps into, these, these factors of daily life. So the overarching directive in the section that we just read is repeated three times. In verse 17, in verse 20, and verse 24. Basically, remain as you were when called to follow Christ. The first way that said is lead the life assigned. Lead the life assigned. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Your life was assigned to you. Have you ever thought of it that way? Nobody else can live your life for you. And we're to live the life that we've been called to and live that faithfully. And not only was the life that you've been given assigned to you, this verse says that you have been called to your life. So it's kind of both directions. God has called you to the life you are in. So that's the first way Paul says, live as you're called, stay in that, in that remain in that status. The second, remain as you were when called is mentioned in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then the third place it's mentioned is verse 24, where it says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. That is, remain in your condition with God. Realize that you do not live the life to which you are called to alone. God is with you in it. As you remain, you remain with God. It's not like, oh, I got to get to this certain life status, then God's going to be with me. I got to get to this certain social environment, then God's going to be with me. 
Believer, God is with you in your life condition right now. If you're a Christian, God is with you right now. It's not, he's not waiting until you get certain things aligned. God's presence is with you in your life, and it's not contingent on attaining a certain social status or a return to the law. Now, this, for us, probably seems pretty repetitive. Like, there's three places where Paul's just saying, remain as you're called, remain as you're called, remain as you're called. Why is it so repetitive? Well, it's because we're not dealing with necessarily the same form of the error as what's being dealt with in Corinth. Most people, when you came to faith in Christ, probably aren't telling you, in order to be a good Christian, you have to immediately do this, this, and this as far as totally reorienting what you do on a day-in, day-out basis. But nevertheless, there's going to be some, some major implications. The various situations in which one lives, this is a quote from Gordon Fee, in which one lives either by nature or by choice ultimately belong to the category of irrelevant in terms of one's relationship with God. Your, your relationship with God is not contingent upon these things. To the contrary, Paul makes clear that it is in the very status in, status in which you are saved that God is with you. So what's a major implication of this the implication is to vigorously pursue honoring the Lord with your life now. Being saved by Christ and following him absolutely produces radical life transformation. It changes your life following Christ. But that radical life transformation often looks a bit different than we might imagine it to. You might picture radical life reorientation from the inside out means I have to immediately sell everything, I have to immediately change jobs, I have to immediately move overseas, whatever it might be. But a radical life transformation and reorientation happens from the inside out. That, that might produce changes in your life, but it's not that you have to do those sorts of things to have God with you or to do those sorts of things to have true spirituality like those in Corinth were advocating for. So that's the general principle. He repeats it three times in those verses. But then there's two specific categories that he gets into. Circumcision and uncircumcision, and then slavery versus freedom. So first off, circumcision and uncircumcision in verses 18 and 19. We already read it, so I won't reread it. But coming to faith in Christ does not demand circumcision or uncircumcision. Again, I know this is not what most of you are dealing with when you came to faith in Christ, that someone was immediately telling you these things. But the reason matters a lot for us. The reason is that neither count for anything. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. And this would have been mind-blowing to any of the original hearers coming from a Jewish background. And Paul makes clear that keeping the commandments of God, that, that does matter. Obedience matters, but Mosaic law fulfillment does not. Christians are grafted into the new covenant and become beneficiaries of its promises. But we're not expected to fulfill the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant, which God made with Israel at Sinai, which is now broken and annulled through their disobedience. I've included a lot of verses there so you can dig into that and think more about that. There's a lot there to think about. But the main thing to realize is that Christians aren't called to a return to the Mosaic Law. And Paul wants to make that very clear. But also, he wants to make clear that you don't have to pretend, for, for those that were coming from that Jewish background, you don't have to pretend and try to act like you never were a Jew. You don't have to try and, he says, remove the marks of uncircumcision. The point is, those, those things are, are now irrelevant in the New Covenant. 1 Corinthians 9, we'll get to this in 
uh, a couple weeks, 9, 20 through 21, Paul says, to the, Jew, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. It's, a, it's kind of complicated what Paul's trying to be sure he's, he's not saying, hey, you can just totally ditch the idea of any idea of obedience or any concept of trying to honor the Lord with your life. No, you can do whatever. He's, he's definitely rejecting that concept. But he's also rejecting the concept that says you have to return to the Old Testament law. And he does that in a very short amount of words. Again, a quote from Gordon Fee I think is helpful here. I've included it in your handout. How can Paul eliminate works, that is circumcision, and then turn about and insist on works after all? The answer, of course, is that Paul did not consider obedience to the commandments of God as, quote-unquote, works of the law. This is an unfortunate confounding of terms within some Protestant theology that Paul himself would scarcely have understood. Almost certainly, this refers to the ethical imperatives of the Christian faith, where it says the commandments of God, the ethical imperatives of the Christian faith. Everything we read throughout the New Testament, especially, that's communicating how we're supposed to live as Christians. One's proper response to grace is obedience to the will of God. So, Grace makes us want to obey God. Grace doesn't lead us back into the old covenant that was annulled. So that's why circumcision and uncircumcision now matter for nothing. They don't count for anything. It's not what matters. So don't try to change status in that category. And then in verse 21 through 23, he talks about slavery and freedom. Contrasts these two things. To slaves, he says, don't be concerned about it. Which is, again, like, those would have been telling him, the, the, the false teachers would have been telling them, you have to be free from slavery if you're going to have a, a truly spiritual life or a life that's truly honoring to the Lord. Paul says, don't be concerned about it. But then he turns around and says, yet take the opportunity if you are able to be freed. Take the opportunity if you're able to be freed. He kind of says, again, he says two things there, right? He says, wait a second, don't be concerned about it, yet take the opportunity if you can. But saying it that way communicates you don't have to be concerned about it as it pertains to your spirituality, to your growth as a Christian, to your spiritual maturity. No matter what circumstance you are in, your maturity is not dependent on that circumstance that God's placed you in. And the reason that he undergirds this with in verse 22, for he who has, was called in the Lord as a bondservant, that is, as a slave, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So the reason is that salvation has both set us free and enslaved us. Salvation has both set us free and enslaved us. That might sound like a contradiction, but the spiritual realities of slavery to Christ and freedom from slavery to sin transcend the physical realities of the servitude that those in Corinth faced. And today, that reality of our slavery to Christ, our slavery to righteousness, and our freedom from sin, that transcends our freedom here today. The principle applies both cases. So again, 
there were those who were apparently advocating that one's spirituality was somehow limited by one's social status. And only if you had this certain social status could you be truly enlightened or truly spiritual. Paul disagrees with the way they come to that conclusion, but nevertheless, he does gently encourage someone to pursue freedom if possible. And then the advice for the, the free man is don't enter slavery. Don't enter slavery. The reason you were purchased with a price. 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Don't enter slavery. You were purchased with a price. The payment for your redemption, and this has implications for us today. The payment for your redemption, the price that God paid to set you free, impacts the way you think about your own freedom. And here in America, we regularly celebrate and speak about our freedom. And I think this verse here, it should be a prompter for us. When, when we think about freedom, we should think about the even deeper freedom that we have in Christ. The, the reminders that we have regularly here in America of our freedoms should be a reminder of the greater freedom of being set free from the penalty of our sins through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. So some discussion as we think about this and kind of unpack this first section. How should this passage fuel contentment and how does it demonstrate that spiritual maturity is not dependent on circumstances, status, or ethnic background? Why, should verse, why would verse 19 have been such a shock to the Jews? And what does this verse teach us about a believer's responsibility to obey God while not being called to return to the Old Testament Mosaic Law? And then lastly, how does our simultaneous freedom from sin and slavery to Jesus Christ transform our perspective on our own autonomy, our own I can do whatever I want mentality. And how does this concept connect to Romans 6, 15 through 18? Take maybe five to 10 minutes or so, unpack those things at tables and we'll talk briefly together when we come back. So dig into those things and we'll carry on in a minute. We'll um, mosey on to the next section here in verse 25 through 40 specific input for the unmarried. So when, when Paul just gave the section that we just read, the resounding question in the Corinthians' minds would basically be, does this whole remain as you're called thing apply to those wanting to get married? Does it apply in that situation, Paul? That is the specific input he turns to in this section. He turns and he starts talking, he says in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. And before I read further, I just want to say um, betrothed there is the way the ESV renders it. Probably if you have another version, uh, NIV, uh, NASB, KJV, it probably reads virgins. Um, many translations translate it that way. Contextually, either term can be used. But as we go through this section, keep in mind that when we read betrothed, literally that is a young woman, a virgin, who is engaged to be married. So he's using either term works as long as you understand what's being referred to. So it's, it's a young woman engaged to be married when we read betrothed. Literally, the word means virgin, but in context, the concept of a woman engaged to be married. The focus of the section is on evaluating engagement. And rather than read the whole section, we're actually going to kind of go piece by piece so that we can trace Paul's argument as we go and see the, the contours of what he communicates. So the first thing we see is in verse 25, Paul is not relaying a command 
in the advice which follows. He is not relaying a command in the advice which follows. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So this word judgment, the um, BDAG, a popular dictionary, is, um, defines this Greek term as a viewpoint or way of thinking about a matter, an opinion, a judgment, or a way of thinking. This is something I think a little bit stronger than an opinion, but a little bit weaker than a formal judicial decision. Kind of think of, here's my advice. It's almost like Paul is saying, this is the way I see it. Paul adds that the way he sees it matters because of who he is. He's not just someone saying, eh, take it or leave it. What he has to say does matter because he's giving input on very, very big life decisions. And furthermore, he's doing so as one who has received mercy from the Lord, who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. This term, the Lord's mercy, uh, is used to refer um, typically to apostleship. So he's, he's highlighting his apostleship. He's received mercy. He's trustworthy. 2 Corinthians 4.1 and Galatians 1.15-16 use that term. But Paul's input on these matters is not just some guy thinking out loud. He's, he's someone that should be speaking to these issues. So that's where he's coming from. He's not giving a command from the Lord, but he's giving some advice that should be listened to. And I think before we jump into this passage, I think just the way this passage functions for us today, I think it, it serves as a sort of speed bump on the road to marriage. A speed bump that I think every single person should work through and think through in their minds as they think about wanting to get married. Because there are a lot of passages in Scripture which speak about the goodness of marriage, but a passage like this functions to force someone considering marriage to slow down and really think, what are my reasons here, and do I know what I'm getting into, and do I realize the seriousness of marriage, and do I also realize the goodness of singleness? I think that's really helpful for uh, us today as timeless in that regards, but he's also going to be addressing some very specific things which we see in verse 26. In verse 26 and 27, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So single, singleness, a good status amidst the distress of the day. And note that here he says, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It's not a command, remain as he is. He says, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It's not near as directive or imperative as remain as you are. And also realize that this is in light of the present distress. So there's a specific situation, a specific circumstance that brings about this specific advice. I included two extended quotes, but many take the idea that this is some sort of localized distress in Corinth, maybe a famine, maybe particular persecution. Others take a more broad view that says, no, the the present distress is a reference to all of the hardships and all of the trials experienced throughout all of the church age. I tend to land somewhere in the middle here. There he's, he's talking about, yes, something that's specific and unique to Corinth, but many of those things recur throughout church history and are present throughout. So there, there is present distress in any given century, in any given context. So it is a specific scenario that Paul's speaking to, but much of our own scenario could be, could be seen in this too. So what follows is Paul's advice 
given the present scenario or distress of those in Corinth. This is advice, and the advice is remain as you are when called. Don't seek freedom, that is separation from your spouse. He talked about that extensively previously. We dug into that quite a bit last week. But then he also says, don't seek to be bound to a wife or a spouse. The first command would have been super easy to follow. Okay, Paul's just spent several verses explaining that in the section above. But this whole, don't seek to be bound to a wife, don't seek to be married. Wait a second, what do you, what do you mean there, Paul? What are you saying? Verse 28 is a key clarification, 28 through 31. But if you do marry, if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Uh, what? <laughs> and let those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing away. This advice that Paul gives could easily have been twisted by the ascetics in Corinth to justify their position that marriage was bad or less spiritual. So Paul very quickly makes clear, if you get married, it's not a sin. If you get married, it's not a sin. Marriage is not a sin. But he also is quick to say that marriage is hard. It invites additional complexity and troubles into one's life. The explanation of the challenge of marriage is related to the urgency of the days. And he connects this to not just marriage, but really so many other things in life. Marrieds, mourners, rejoicers, buyers, those that deal with the world are all to live with a constant awareness of ultimate priorities in light of the transient nature of the present world. This world is passing away in light of how transient, how quick our time here on earth is and how quick this world's existence will be. We need to live with a sense of urgency, and that puts a lot of things in perspective, including marriage. So the reason for the advantage of singleness is freedom from worldly anxiety. Freedom from worldly anxiety. This is verses 32 through 34. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. I want you to be free from anxieties. And the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. So notice that he uses anxieties two different ways. One's kind of this free from anxieties, negative anxieties. Then he talks about anxious for the Lord as a good thing. This is super relevant for our day when anxiety is labeled as an ever-present condition for many of us. But realizing that there's a type of anxiety that's actually godly and we should be anxious, but... Carrying on in verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, earth-bound things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. The statement here, the single person has godly anxiety for how to please 
Christ. Just personal reflection for all of you. Paul assumes that this godly anxiety characterizes the life of an unmarried believer. Is this the reigning anxiety in your life? Is this anxiety something that characterizes your life as a single person? Are you anxious for how to please the Lord? Paul assumes that that's the case. Assumes that for unmarrieds, that's what they're anxious about. But then he recognizes that the married person has necessarily divided concerns. His concerns are divided, and it's, it's necessary that it be so. Marriage has more distractions away from devotion to Christ. Many, not all, many of these distractions can be mitigated through thoughtful prioritization, regular communication, and careful planning. But fundamentally, at its core, marriage makes following Jesus more complicated, not simpler. Couples preparing for marriage should seriously and practically discuss together how serving the Lord and devotion to Christ will be pursued throughout various seasons of married and family life because it won't happen by accident. The constant tendency in marriage is going to be to be pulled towards earthbound devotions, towards cares of this world, which is why communicating about those things ahead of time is extremely important for living a life together that's honoring to the Lord and prioritizing his purposes. So good premarital counseling should help generate a lot of those conversations, but it doesn't, doesn't remove the realities of these concerns. Intentionality in dating, intentionality in engagement should help, but again, it doesn't remove these realities. But then Paul is quick to say in verse 35, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This, advi this advice is to their benefit, not as a restraint against marriage. Paul again clarifies that marriage is not a sin and he is no way prohibiting marriage. Simply his advice is that following Jesus and honoring him is simpler as a single. Paul clearly assumes that singleness is not pursued for selfish reasons. I mean, I gotta, we should really step back and realize that, that culturally, that's so often today why singleness is chosen, for pursuing selfish ends, for pursuing my own desires, for pursuing my own gratification. Paul clearly in this passage assumes that a believing Christian, believing single, a Christian who is single is going to be going after things of the Lord, pursuing a life that's honoring the Lord, devoted to the Lord, not just, oh, I'm, I'm single so that I can do whatever I want. Not at all. So as you think about your life, singleness should be evaluated as a perfectly legitimate option and as a valid means of honoring the Lord and pursuing a life that's devoted to him. Truly evaluate your life in that, in that recognition and awareness that singleness is not second best in God's kingdom. It's not somehow secondary to a life of true obedience. Far from it. But godly stewardship of singleness means recognizing that it should be a period in your life in which you are able to direct zealous energy towards serving the Lord with the unique flexibility and singular focus that that season allows. The, the years of singleness, you have the ability to be flexible and the ability to be very singular in your focus. And it's to be stewarded. That season is, is a gift that we talked about last week, and it's a gift to be stewarded and used for God's purposes.
So a couple more questions to discuss before we finish out this last section with a specific scenario. Two questions there. One, Paul assumes that an unmarried Christian will be anxious about the things of the Lord. Does this good anxiety characterize your life as an unmarried person? What other anxieties distract you from this godly anxiety? And the second, Paul is sure to establish that marriage is not a sin. How could his instructions have been misapplied if he had not made this clear? So go ahead and discuss those at tables. Go. All right. Hopefully you've been able to have some good discussion through those couple questions and feel free to loop back to those ones after we're done too. But I want to just finish out by hitting verses 36 uh, and the following verses where Paul gets into a specific scenario. Verses 36 through 38, a specific scenario. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let, him, let them marry, it is no sin. And I'll just pause there and say, the, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, that is an imperative in the third person. So we get the idea in English of like a, a second person imperative, like you, buy me coffee. We, we understand that. In English, it's hard to translate a third person imperative, so you have to use the words let him blank, like let him buy me coffee. And that sounds way more passive, right? It sounds like, oh, just like let him, let him do that, allow him to do that. But really, what's underneath this is an imperative, a command, let this person marry. Like, he should marry. He needs to marry. It's a command in, in that verse, in verse uh, 38. So um, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Four conditions there. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, positive thing, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So the situation is that a man and a woman are engaged to be married at Corinth, and the ascetics are pressuring them to not go through with the marriage because of the phrase that we looked at verse 1 last week. But there's still in this, there's that command to be married that we just talked about, that third person imperative. For many, marriage may be a matter of obedience. I'll say that again. Marriage may be a matter of obedience for many. In the case of this individual, it likely was. Let him marry. Let them marry. Let him do as he wishes. It is no sin. Marriage may be a matter of obedience for many. The decision to not marry one's fiance, verse 37 through 38, four requirements for coming to this conclusion are seen. First, firmly established in heart, not under any compulsion or necessity, having his desire or will under control, and decided and determined in heart, which is, of course, really similar to the first one. Basically, Paul wants to make very certain that this person is not breaking off the engagement because of pressures from those false teachers in Corinth who denied the goodness of the marital sexual relationship. He wants to make very clear 
that if, if they decide not to get married, that's okay, but it better not be because of false teaching in the church saying that marriage is somehow a bad thing. So that's what he's going after very clearly here. Again, a quote from Gordon Fee. These verses are not a judgment on marriage or singleness per se at all, but on whether or not engaged couples in that setting should get married. Paul makes it clear that marriage is a perfectly valid option. It has nothing to do with good or evil, or even with better or worse, but with good and better in light of that situation. I think verse 38 is just such a wonderful summary on this whole section. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Again, it's not a matter of better or worse. It's a matter of, matter of good and even better. The good-better comparison is related to the present distress mentioned in verse 28. He goes out of his way to ensure that the reader does not think that either marriage or singleness is inherently superior to the other. And just one comment briefly on that section to the idea of to keep her as his betrothed. Here it's helpful to remember that to keep her as his virgin is the literal translation there, which is just a communication of to not marry. This isn't advocating some sort of like perpetual engagement, just like, oh, it's fine, just, just be engaged forever. Um, no, the idea of keep her as his betrothed, keep her as his virgin, and then after they break off the engagement in that cultural context, they wouldn't have been like there's still ongoing um, this girl is his person. That would no longer be the case. So just want to clarify that because that could be potentially like, is this advocating for ongoing uh, engagement? Uh, no, it's not. It's advocating for that's deciding not to get married, keeping her as a virgin. So rolling forward to the last two verses, 39 and 40, there's specific advice for a different situation. And that is widows are free to remarry. Widows are free to remarry, verses 39 through 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Caveat, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And we'll read the last section of that verse in a moment. So the stipulation for this widow that's free to remarry, widows to free to remarry, is only in the Lord. They must marry a believer. Last week, we had the situation of husbands and wives that were married, but they, one of them wasn't a believer. So Paul's giving direction to those that they got married, and then at some point, one of them became a Christian. Here, in this case, he's giving direction to someone that is a believer, and he's saying, clearly, the stipulation is, don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry someone that's not a believer. They must be married in the Lord. And this aligns really closely with 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. That said, although a widow is free to remarry, again, Paul gives his advice from Paul's perspective. Yet in my judgment, he says, verse 40, if she remains as she is, she is happier. And then the end of verse 40 the basis for Paul's advice in 25 through 40, which he loops back to what he started with, and that is the guidance of the Spirit, the wisdom given him, the mercy given him. Paul again says, in my judgment. In my judgment, I give these things, reminding the reader that he is providing advice, not commands, important advice, advice to be heeded, an important passage to know and understand. And although not an authoritative command from the Lord, although not an authoritative 
command from the Lord, Paul does highlight that he is guided by the Holy Spirit in this matter. Although he is giving advice, he is giving weighty advice, and it's advice coming from a spirit-indwelled apostle. So as we wrap up in conclusion here, faith in Christ and spirituality don't necessitate a social status change. Nevertheless, there are other reasons why a status change might be considered or discouraged. Marriage is a major commitment which impacts one's responsibilities and introduces the potential for distraction from devotion to the Lord. And though certainly not sinful, marriage should be pursued prayerfully and with practical preparation for how it will be intentionally oriented towards serving the Lord. It's not something that should just be whimsically entered. This passage, again, I think, serves as a a bit of a speed bump and a helpful check for everyone considering marriage to truly question the motives and ensure that this is the thing that God has for you and this is the, the good path that he has you on. So with that, let me close this in prayer and feel free to come ask any questions afterwards if there's any points that need clarification. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to be able to call you our Father and come before you as your children. And we are thankful that you are with us in every season, in every circumstance, in every trial, and in every status. Lord, we're thankful for this passage and the guidance that it gives, the advice that um, Paul gave under inspiration of your Spirit and just the, the wisdom that that brings in, in helping us to think through situations in our day, some of which translate very directly, some of which are, are a little bit specific to Corinth. Lord, give us wisdom in internalizing these things and living them out and practicing them. I ask specifically and especially for this group here this morning that you would give each person wisdom as they consider marriage. Lord, we recognize from your word it is, it is a good thing, it is a good gift. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Marriage is something that you've gifted. But Lord, I also ask that you would give each person here uh, consideration regarding the usefulness of singleness and the season in which you've placed them right now and how they can steward their time and their resources, their availability and their flexibility for things pertaining to your purposes and in devotion to you. We just ask that you would greatly bless each of us as we consider how we can use the minutes and the hours that you've given us here on earth to honor you and glorify you with everything. We love you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much.